0: I need you to picture a man selling a new product, a new pill. Uh, It's a pill that he claims will help you get better sleep, lose weight, and put on more muscle. All you need is one pill a day. He said he's tried it on thousands of people and seen incredible results all around. But you notice he doesn't look like he's in the best of shape, so you ask him, have you tried it? And goes, well, why would I try it? Why, well, you, you know, you claim it's so good. Wouldn't you want all these benefits? No, no, I'm just the doctor. I'm just the researcher. I'm not going to try that stuff. Do you take the pill? The answer is probably not. Or picture someone who you're having a conversation with about music, and you ask them what type of music you like. And they say, I love jazz music. And then you respond with, oh, I love jazz as well who are some of your favorite jazz musicians? And they say, "Uh, you know, I just like a little bit of all of it, just, you know, like a lot of different types of jazz. Oh, like who, like who? Well, you know, just a little bit of everything. Do they really know jazz? Probably not. Maybe a better example, picture a man who says he loves his wife, but cheats on her. See, in all of these examples, you have someone saying something, but their actions demonstrating something different. Today, we're going to be dealing with one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. It's in the book of James chapter 2, and it has to deal with this issue of faith and work. See, in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle claims again and again and again and again that we are saved by grace through faith. And James today is going to say something that sure sounds a lot different than what Paul says, and so this is such, such a tough passage that Martin Luther, and I hate to throw him under the bus, he just turned 435 yesterday. Um, he called James the, an epistle of straw. He didn't like kick it out of the Bible, but he thought it shouldn't be weighted as much as maybe Paul's words. So there's this great Protestant reformer, f- hero of the faith to many. And when he reads what we're going to read today, he said, uh, I don't know about this. Maybe this shouldn't be in the Bible. So we're dealing with one of the most theologically controversial passages, and also simultaneously, how should I say, like, one of the most psychologically disturbing or problematic. So with that preface, let's dig right in. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for their body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. What's the context here? So, um... You see someone in need, and this person in, this, in, in the text is called a brother, and that's a specific term. It means there's, they're a part of the religious community. So it's not like saying, like, you know how you, you see someone on TV who might be hurting or struggling, or you know of someone on the other side of the world. The Bible cares about those issues, but what we're talking about in this verse is someone who is a part of the community of faith who doesn't have enough food to eat and is poorly clothed. And again, in ancient context, 2,000 years ago, like, poorly clothed and not having enough food is like not, I'm hungry, I haven't ate dinner yet, and, you know, I don't like my clothes. It means you're, you're in extreme poverty. So if you see that person and you do nothing, what good is your faith? Your faith is dead if you don't respond to that in action. Now, South Valley Community Church is no, like, mega church by American standards. I mean, in America... We have churches that have like 10,000 people, but you need to understand in the historical context, this is like a mega church. It's a mega church. Probably 99% of all churches in the last 2,000 years are, are under 100 people. And that's actually like 90% today, even right now, are less than 100 people in America. But in the historical picture, I mean, your church is 100 people or less, and you know everyone's name. So why does that make this kind of the sting all the greater? It's if someone in your let's say 70 person church is without food or clothing you, you, you do, they're not a stranger you know them you know their name you go to church with them every week so if someone you know who's in that inner kind of circle of friends in the faith is in poverty and you do nothing to help them James says your faith is dead it's dead James would say, I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care how many Sundays you've attended church. I don't care if you got sparky of the year at Awanas. If you do not help that brother or sister in need, your faith is dead, inoperative, non-existent. James goes on, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works you believe that god is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless these are fighting words james is later going to talk about like how, how the tongue is deadly and how you shouldn't you know say anything bad about people and use your tongue to bless people but what did he just this is so important to him that right before he says that what is he Talk, how does he address people that have faith without works? You foolish person. Don't you know faith apart from works is useless? Okay, this first part. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So it's hard to see faith. It's like this intangible thing. You can't just like pick it up. Oh, here's faith. It's in this box something that's a part of the will and the conscience. And so how do you see it in action? How do you know it's there? It manifests itself in deeds, works, or actions. If you're familiar with the Gospels, there's a story in them where there's a man who's paralyzed. He has a couple friends that want to bring him to Jesus. Jesus is teaching in a house, but the room is packed with people so they can't get in. So what do they do? The two friends take the paralytic man and they dig a hole through the roof and lure the man And you remember what Jesus says, or what the gospel writers say. When he sees their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. So how did Jesus see their faith? Well, when they believed enough to dig a hole in a roof and lower the paralytic man to to receive healing from Jesus. That's how you see faith. Now, focus on verse 19, because this is like, This is some of the best stuff in all of the Bible right here. It's the best and most scary stuff in all of the Bible. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James is saying just intellectual belief in God, intellectual assent doesn't cut it. You know, right now, even, even with the growing secular, secularism in our country, like, more than 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. Does it look and feel like America's filled, 80% born-again Bible-believing, God-fearing, God-loving, people-blessing Christians? The answer is no. So you can't just intellectually affirm something, and that counts as faith. But James goes further. James, says, James does not say in verse 19, you believe in God. He says, you believe that God is one. This is a specific formulation in the Jewish mind. any of you know where this is? It's not saying that I believe in God. I believe that God is one. This is a quote he's alluding to, Deuteronomy 6.4, which is called the Shema. Shema means hear or listen, and it's hear, listen, hear, listen O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is the most important and foundational verse in all of Jewish thought. So James is saying, it's not just that you, you just claim to believe in God, you even believe the Shema, that God is one. You, you have, like, technically good theology. Everyone else in the world believes in multiple gods. You have good Jewish theology. You believe the right doctrine. Doctrine is a kind of a term we use to mean teaching. And he says, good for you. Demons affirm the Shema. Demons believe Deuteronomy 6.4. Demons are orthodox. Orthodox is another term that means right thinking, or you think the right things. You have good theology. So it's like, you have good doctrine. You have good theology. You are Orthodox. Good for you. The demons do all of that. But you know what? At least they shudder. At least they understand the holiness of God. At least when they look at the righteousness of God, there's a fear in the demonic. How about us Christians? How many of us approach God and worship and the scripture so nonchalantly, so cavalier? No respect or fear for holiness. No awe. James goes, oh, you go to, you know, you go to church and... And you say you believe, you know the Shema, so do the demons, but at least they have a healthy fear of God. You see why this is scary? James is addressing in in the first part about the person who doesn't help the brother in need, we'll call them like the armchair philanthropist, which is very popular in our culture. It's the virtue signaler, you know? They talk about all the good that needs to be done in the world. Oh, I want to help the starving children. I want to stand up for this cause. I want to do this. But in reality, they give no percent of their income to anything. The only thing they do is tweet about it. Tweet about, you know, the armchair philanthropist. Oh, let me post this link about this cause or this problem. And then he's talking about an orthodox demon. A demon that has good theology. So there's... Demon faith and, like, dead faith. And that stuff isn't going to cut it, according to James. So here's the thing. The Bible will say again and again in multiple places that we are saved by grace through faith. But sort of, like, embedded in faith is the seeds that will produce fruit or the seeds that will produce right action. Now, why is that? It's a logical flow of things because when you are saved by grace, nothing you've done has earned that. But when God gives you grace and you receive it by faith, the Bible says you're born again, his spirit's put inside of you, and now you're not the same person. And that new person who's received grace freely will live differently, the different living isn't what causes the salvation, but the different living is a response to the grace freely received. Now, this is why it's, it's, it's crazy, is what James is saying, and he, keep in mind, who's he writing to? He's writing to people who go to church, who know the Shema, who know Deuteronomy 6.4, they know the Bible, talks about demons having good theology. Who, this is who he's writing to. And he says, it is possible for you to go to church and affirm all the right things and still be dead in faith. In other words, maybe you just grew up Christian. And you know, when you grow up Christian, it's it's an incredible blessing, but the danger is this. You can grow up Christian and learn all the right Christian lingo, learn the right language, learn the things to say. You sound Christian. And you develop the habits even of going to church every Sunday. So you have the language of religion and Christianity, even some of the habits of religion and Christianity. And maybe you even behave in a certain way because as a child you observe that certain behavior was rewarded by the religious community. So you even produce behavioral patterns that look Christian. What James is saying is even then if you don't have a genuine faith that genuinely loves God, you need to examine your life. Because guess what? Even the demons believe. And at least they shudder in fear of his holiness. You feel the weight of this? It's weighty. It's like, man, this is heavy. So how do you know if you have genuine faith? James is going to tell us, do you, kind of in a rude way. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? How do you go about looking at this? Well, he brings up a story. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active all along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For those of you who know like your Bible and your church history, do you see why Martin Luther at this point is going like, James is whack. James, you, sorry, James, I know you're the you know, half-brother of Jesus, but you're mistaken here. I mean, James just said, verse 24, last verse, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what's going on? James wants to bring up a story. And it makes sense to go to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith. And so he brings up the story. that The story is called the Akhada in Jewish tradition and thought, and it means the binding. It's the story where God tells Abraham, go take your son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Kill your son. And for us modern people, that sounds crazy. How could a God, a so-called God, ask a man to kill their child? Now, we approach that through the modern lens, through the modern eyes and the modern mind. For the ancient person, Abraham's day, the question is not, how could a god or goddess ask me to sacrifice my children? The gods or goddesses of the ancient world always did that. It was more common than you think, more common than you'd want. The question for Abraham was, I thought that this god who revealed himself to me was different. I thought, my god, was a good God who's for me and not against me. I thought my God was different than 99.9% of all the other gods and goddesses that people worship. So for Abraham, the question was, can I trust that this God is good? Can I trust that this God will be faithful to his promises? Why? Because remember, God promised Abraham many descendants. And he's got this one son, Isaac, and now I'm supposed to go kill him? This doesn't make sense. So what does Abraham do? By faith, he tells his servants, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going up there with my son, and me and my son are going to come back down from this hill. See, he, he believed that his God truly was different. He wasn't like the other gods. And so Abraham had faith, but that faith did what? It actually did something. Walked up a mountain. But he still had, the the faith was fueling the action or the deeds. This is incredibly interesting. In verse um, 22, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. This word completed is super important. It's telos, where we get our word Telescope. Telos can be translated in a number of ways in English. It's very difficult to understand what it's meaning in the ancient language because it could mean completed. It could also mean perfected. So faith was perfected by his work or faith was completed by his work. But telos usually has the nuance of reaching the desired goal of something. So think, what is the desired end goal of faith? What is the desired end of our faith? It's that it would be manifested in some type of good work. The shape of faith wants to take on good deeds, right action. So faith has a telos, and the end goal or the desired end goal of faith is right action. So you believe the right thing, But within that belief is the seed or the trajectory for right action. Now, do you see the internal logic of James? If you don't have the action manifesting, at least in the external world, somehow, is there any real faith behind it? And for James, the answer is no. If you don't have the work, the desired end goal, then you have to ask the question, Is faith real or genuine? You do well to believe. Good for you. So do the demons and shudder. This is James' argumentation. Now, it would make sense for James to bring up Abraham. Like if you're going to prove a point of theology or, or of like faith and works, you bring up like Abraham. He's like the founder. I mean, we sing songs about him. If you grew up in church, you know. You know what I'm talking about? father abraham had many sons many sons had father abraham you know what i'm one of them so are you so let's just praise the lord and then it gets really annoying you know i remember it's like right arm, left arm if you if you didn't grow up in church like 50 percent of you are laughing 50 percent is like what's going on just don't just know that you sing songs about abraham you would expect James to do that, but you don't expect him to do what he does next. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? You expect him to bring up like the patriarch, the founder of the faith, but you don't Rahab the prostitute? We don't have no songs about her. (laughs) Mother Rahab was a prostitute. You don't have those songs. But this is, what is he doing? Uh, There. the hebrew bible likes to use something called merisms and merisms is where you take two things that are polar opposite and what you're what you're communicating is that this is true of this and this is true of this and everything in between so for example in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth that's a merism it's not just saying like god created this thing called earth and this thing called heaven It's saying he created heaven and earth and everything in between. In other words, God created everything. So James is talking about people who are justified, who have true faith and demonstrate that by true good works. And he brings up like two polar opposites of people a prostitute and the father of the faith. And he's saying both of these people are righteous before the Lord, both the founder of the faith and the prostitute, are righteous before God. Why? Because their faith wasn't dead, it actually did something. So in the story of Rahab, basically, there's Jewish spies going into this area, and she protects them. She protects them from getting caught and probably tortured and killed, Um, and she's using an example of someone who feared God. Now, why do you think James would bring up Rahab? It's not just because she's a prostitute. She wasn't Jewish. She wasn't raised with, she wasn't raised learning the Bible stories. She didn't know Father Abraham's song. She probably had kind of wacky theology. But she had enough in her to trust the God of Israel. So there's some people who have like really good biblical knowledge. You know, like there's people who know The Bible they don't love God. You can know the word of God and not know the God of the word. And so what James brings up is an example of a woman who didn't know the word at all, but she had enough in her to fear the God of Israel and shudder. And her faith was demonstrated by her actions. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Heavy stuff. So James is saying, his warning to all of us is that you can profess faith. He's writing to Christians. You can even go to church and still be in wrong standing before God. The reason why this is so controversial is because Paul, the apostle, and the rest of the New Testament again and again will say, you're saved by faith. You're justified by faith. And so James seems to be kind of in friction with them. The problem is, is if you actually let the other New Testament authors speak, you'll realize that they're all saying the same thing in different ways. They're all saying the same thing just in different ways. James writes very early James is writing his letter to Jewish Christians very, very early, and so there's there's not a need for theological precision and clarification. He's just writing to let people know, hey, look, if you claim to be a Christian, you don't look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, you should probably check check yourself. Paul is writing later in many of his letters after theological debates have arisen, and so he's going to be more precise. So I want to show you how... Paul, in the book of Ephesians, actually clarifies himself this tension and resolves it for us. Ephesians 2.8, this is, this is the grace part. This is why people think Paul's a grace dude and James is a work dude. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Why are you saved? Jesus. Grace. Grace. He saw you, and he didn't say, well, you better do some good things, you better do some good works, or you got to straighten up your life to be worthy of me. He saw you unworthy and said, I will make you worthy, and he gives you grace. And how do you receive grace? There's a freeway, if you will. The freeway is faith. Grace is free. It's received through the highway. You can picture grace traveling through the freeway, through the, the highway of faith. When you trust God that he alone is sufficient, that you trust God that he sent Jesus to take your place on the cross, you've done nothing at that point. Paul emphasizes this. He says, you've done nothing. The reason why you know you know nothing is that you don't get to boast. So if you're a Christian, there's no boasting. You don't get to be like, I figured it out. You know, we love apologetics at this church. That's kind of giving an intellectual defa- defense of Christianity. But sometimes with like, when you get like into apologetics or so- stuff, you actually begin to think that you're a Christian because you were so smart, you just knew the historical details and you figured it out for yourself. Like, no one comes to Christ because they are in- so intellectual that they just figured it out. You come by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Or you don't get to say, I, you know, I'm such a good Christian, therefore God saved me. There's no ground, you don't get to boast, you don't get to brag. What do you get to brag in? Christ. Christ and what he's done. Grace through faith. Now this is firmly established in, in 289, and this is where people again say, see, Paul's all about grace and faith, and James is all about works. Now whenever Ephesians 289 is quoted, it's rarely quoted with the next verse. Here's the next verse. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre- pre- prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved by grace through faith for what? For good action. You do something in this world. It's been a rough couple weeks, right? Right? What is the Christian response? Go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. It's the armchair philanthropist. The Christian faith manifests itself in a hurting, broken, suffering world through right action. Right thinking, right belief, right action. Paul says it best in in another verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul brings up kind of some Jewish ritualistic elements in the Old Testament. He says, look at the works of the law, circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. What counts is faith. But what does true faith look like? Faith works through love. So to be precise in our language here, so we get like the right theology and the right formula. Here is the internal logic that I believe if you put James and Paul together in a room, they would both go, oh yeah, I get that. You're saved by grace, through faith, for good works. But depending upon who you're talking to, you need to emphasize different things. So for James, talking to Christians who think they're Christian, maybe just because they they affirm some intellectual thought, he needs to remind them, faith without works is dead. But for Paul, who's writing to people who are trying to justify themselves before God by works of the Old Testament law, he has to emphasize this. You're saved by grace through faith. Circumcision or circumcision doesn't count for anything. What counts is faith. And so you have to emphasize Something different depending upon who you are talking to. And that's actually kind of what, what I have to do. Talking to an audience that there's different people in the room. Because there's, there are two types of people in this room. There, there's, there's, there's some of you who, by nature, you, you sort of always feel, feel guilty and like you're not good enough Christian. You know who you are. It's like this whole way you've just been going like, oh, I'm worse than the demons. You know, you think you think horrible thoughts about yourself? The voices tell you evil, harmful things. You condemn yourself, you feel unworthy. You need to hear the first part of the message. Don't you ever forget you were saved by grace. God loved you. Took you into his family not because of some future potential version of you, but for The worst version of you Christ did not die for the better version of you he died for you on your worst day while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so you got to hear that truth well there's another person in the room who um remember I mentioned 80 percent of Americans think they're Christian and you come just because you know maybe your wife drags you to church usually it's that way some you know statistically that's that's true maybe it's because your husband drags you to church or maybe you just go because you think that's what being a moral person means go to church but you bear no fruit You you you're just as rotten as you were 20 years ago you know what i mean there's been no progress you need to hear the message that faith without works is dead. You think you believe good for you, so do the demons. At least they shudder. So there's different types of people. So you have to emphasize different types of things. And what Paul and James are getting at is that a Christian has progress, not perfection. Never going to reach perfection in this lifetime. so, So don't hear me saying, unless you're like some super Christian, then you should question your faith. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if you became a Christian 20 years ago and you've made no progress, you should be examining your life like right now. Because if you truly had genuine faith, you were made a new thing. You were born again and God put his spirit in you. And if there's zero fruit, zero progression, man, your faith might be Dead inoperative, not working. So you say, is there fruit? That's the test of genuine faith. Do you want to know if you have genuine faith? Has there at least been a little progress? Are you bearing good fruit? Jesus says this all over the place. I'll give you two examples of how you test it. Beware of false prophets. This is speaking about false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A, hel- a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. A, m- a metaphor. If, if you're a healthy tree and a good tree, you bear good fruit. Now, some years, maybe it's gonna be hard year, you just produce like one or two kind of crab apples but you at least put something forward with like two grams of sugar, so it's like semi-sweet. But if you look at your life, and let's say you became a Christian 20 years ago, and every year, you're just a tree with no fruit. Jesus would warn you. You might be in danger of judgment. And I can't come up here and good conscience as a pastor, and preach this text and just try to encourage you and remind you all that you're saved by grace through faith alone. There are some of you in here who think you're a Christian, and you're probably not. And Jesus and James and Paul would say, Man, you better examine your life. There's another place where Jesus says the same thing through metaphor. Jesus always speaks in metaphor and parable and allegory I am the vine, you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You get that? If you're a Christian, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you abide in him and you will bear fruit. Why do you bear fruit? Precisely because you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, good things will manifest in the world. If nothing ever happens, that's a problem. Why? Because is it that your sinful condition is so powerful in your life that God's Spirit cannot overcome it? No, it's because God's Spirit probably is not in your life and you're not abiding in Christ. So again, to the two types of people in the room, man, and I hope you hear this, some of you, if, if, if you are the person who tells yourself, I'm the unworthy one. I'm 99% sure that's not, that, that you're, you're the person who needs to be hearing the grace thing. It's like the person who worries about if they're good enough, if they love God enough, obviously fears God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be worrying about it. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're, am I worthy enough of God? Am I, am I, do, do I have enough good works? Do I love him enough? That person would not be wondering those things if they didn't have some type of faith and conviction. So you right now need to remind yourself that you are saved by grace through faith. I don't care what's in your life, no matter how many bad things you've done, you are in Christ and there is no condemnation, none, zero. You're adopted. Jesus says, you are mine, you are my son or daughter. But then also the person just like you're nonchalant about everything, Cavalier, you don't even care. You, don't f- you, you, you know it, you don't fear God. you don't love him. It's just a routine, it's just a ritual, it's just cultural upbringing. You need to repent because you have a faith that is dead. You have a faith that even the demons display. that's where James and Paul come together. that's where they both meet. Now coming out of this, before we enter to communion, I want to give everyone like practical steps that we, where we could go from here. So if you're new to faith, or as I'm speaking, you just realized, oh man, I don't have genuine faith. The first step of obedience, the first good work every Christian should do, according to the Bible, is be baptized. This is really good news. Why? Because that one's easy ever try loving your neighbors <laughs> i got good neighbors that your teens are here i love them but like no like love other people and who who, who is neighbor what does jesus mean by love your neighbor it doesn't mean like literally your neighbor although it includes that it like includes the samaritan the person who's not like you you love people who don't look like you dress like you talk like you that's hard like that's hard the first step of obedience is baptism. We're actually doing baptism, like Christmas baptisms, the second week of December. So if you're not baptized and, and, and you trust in Jesus, first step is to get baptized. We're doing the second week of December. You could just put on the connect cards and the handouts, I want to get baptized. Campus pastor Greg will call you. That's, that's one, one thing you could do. That's faith, that's internal, then being demonstrated by good work in the world. Sort of simple as that. It doesn't have to get complicated. Another thing, steps to take. If you were that person who's going like, I truly don't care, examine your life today. Because if anything, what the last two weeks have taught us is tomorrow is not promised. The day of the Lord is today. There's a reason why the early church Always said Jesus is coming soon. Because Jesus is always coming soon. Whether in the first century or the 21st century, Jesus is always coming soon. So examine your life. Tomorrow's not promised. Step to take for those who are the ones that have the guilty conscience remember what saved you. Remember the cross. Remember Christ. Remember he died for not the best version of you, but the worst version of you on your worst day. And he said, that one is going to be my son or my daughter. Sometimes at messages like this, especially for the person who who doesn't have genuine faith, there's a temptation to go, okay, I get it. Real faith demonstrates itself in good works. So tell me how many good works I have to do in order to have real faith. Give me the list. Give me the list because I need to know. You're practical. That's actually me, by the way. I'm like a, like a just give me the details. I don't want to get all sentimental about it and have to raise my hands and thank you, Jesus. Just tell me what you need me to write a check. I'll do it. You want me to hang out with orphans and widows? Okay, I'll, I'll sign up for a mission trip. That's still trying to earn your salvation by works. And you're missing the point. You can't do right things and stir up a love for God. You're not that good of a person. You have to love God and trust him, and he will stir in you good works. I love my wife, therefore I want to do good things for her. For her, I don't do good things to try and make her love me. That's not, what, that's not how marriage works. So, don't make a list. Start with the only list you need. God, today I want to acknowledge I'm a rotten person and I live for myself. Thank you that you died for a rotten person like me. Thank you, Jesus. And I guarantee you, if you do that with genuine trust, faith, and love, good works so are just going to, you're going to live differently. When you see the gospel and you see the beauty of Christ, you just live differently. That's why you can't boast about it. It's not like, oh, I'm such a good person. I, give, I do this for my church. I do this for my church. No, I've seen the beauty of the cross that comes out. That's the, that's the inner logic of grace, faith, and works. We're going to turn to communion and reflect on all of these things together. I'm just going to pass those out. If, uh, if you're not a Christian, you're, you're just here checking things out. You don't have to take communion. You can just pass the the. the the plate. Don't worry about it. Don't feel awkward. This is something Christians do, believers do. Um, And what I'd like to focus on is a paradox that I skipped over in James. So James wants to demonstrate that faith without works is dead, right? And what story does he bring up? Brings up the story of Abraham and then Rahab, but focus on Abraham. What's the story of Abraham? Going up the mountain, Mount Moriah, going to sacrifice my son. He says, "Oh, you see, Abraham had works, and he focuses on the works things." But here's the paradox: in the example of James, in the, exa- the example that James brings up that supposedly centered on works, the text actually is more grounded in faith than you might think, and I think James knows this. What does Isaac, who's about to be sacrificed, say to his father? Father, Abraham says, Hinani, here I am. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? What does Abraham say? Son, God himself will provide the sacrifice God himself will provide the lamb so James brings up an example that's supposed to be showing off the works which it does but what is the ultimate work in that very example faith where is the lamb Abraham response God will provide a lamb that's faith and how does the story end? Does God provide a lamb? Trick question. No. Provides a ram who's caught in the thicket. So the question you're left wondering is, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? God provides a ram. Isaac is saved. What does Abraham name the place? God will provide, Jehovah Jireh. God Will Not God has provided, God will provide. Where is the lamb? God will provide a lamb. And thousands of years later, on that very mountain, Mount Moriah, it's a different term for the hills of Jerusalem, God would provide the lamb in his son Jesus, who takes the place of all of us. And when you receive him by faith, his spirit does something to you. And you're not gonna be some super holy righteous Christian the next day. You're not even gonna be a super righteous holy Christian 30 years from that day. But with every passing day, two steps forward, one step back, it's making you more and more like his son Jesus, little by little, chiseling away. Let's stand and take communion together. God himself provided a lamb and his son Jesus on those very hills in Jerusalem. The question for Abraham was, is my God different? Is my God good? And in the bread, we see the symbolic body of Christ broken on our behalf. You wanna know how good God is? enough that he would break on your behalf. Let's take it. The, blood re- the cup represents the blood of Jesus poured out on our behalf. And as we take it, the apostle Paul tells us, drink this and remember Jesus, but also proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. Why? because Jesus is always coming soon. Let's drink. Father, as we turn and worship to you, I pray that you give comfort and healing to those who are disturbed, who are convicted. For those who have guilty consciences, and who wrestle with how good they are, Lord. Right now, by your Spirit, I ask you to remind them of gospel-saving truth and how much they are loved and how precious they are before you, that you shed your blood and your body was broken for them. And Father, I pray for those who might be feeling convicted because they know they have a, a faith that's not authentic. It's, it's a demon type of faith. It's a dead faith. It says the right things, but there, there's no internal change. Lord, By your spirit, renew them, convict them, and may they for the first time today truly, genuinely trust in you. May they give their life to you. May they receive grace by faith not of their own doing, not of works. May they do that in order that they might do good on earth as you do in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.